Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello, friends. Happy holidays and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Yeah, it seemed like a sheer hell while we were living through Donald Trump's last year in office. But how bad was it really? the year 2020. You know what? Even worse than we thought, as I realized, after reading Jonathan Carl's new book, Betrayal, the final act of the Trump show. For all four years of the Trump presidency, Jonathan Carl had a front row seat, literally, in the front row of the White House briefing room for ABC News. You may remember, after Trump had told so many lies about COVID-19 being no worse than the flu, Jonathan Carl's the guy who asked Trump, quote, why did you lie to the American people and why should we believe anything you say now? And looking back now, Carl says that given all that Trump tried to do to undermine the election of 2020, we're lucky our democracy survived. Betrayal is by far the best book I've read about the closing days of the Trump White House, and Jonathan Carl joins us today to tell us all about it. Jonathan Carl, hello, hello, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Bill, great to be here. I uh, I must say I'm going to have to uh, admit that I was wrong. At one time, I said, Jonathan Carl, that your book, Front Row in the of the Trump Show was the best book written about the Trump presidency. Now that I've read your new book, Betrayal, I think this one's even better. So well, thank congratulations. You. Thank you. I appreciate it. I, I think it's the most important work that that I've done as a as a journalist and and I you know I poured everything into this one. Yeah, you sure you sure did. And, <laughs> and the show. So I want to ask you, when when did you realize you were there covering the campaign, but then you were in the White House and in the front row, president of our White House Correspondents Association, when did you realize that this presidency was not just like any other presidency, that this one was fundamentally different? I mean, I, I think that probably happened uh, before he was elected. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was clear but, that's where we were heading. But there was I, there was one moment early on that I just realized that there was just we were in entirely different territory here. And that was when, you know, Trump in a random tweet, if I recall, it was on a Saturday, accused Barack Obama of wiretapping Trump Tower. And uh, not only was that just bonkers, and not only did he spell wiretap with two Ps, but um, but none of his people had any idea what he was talking about. I mean, I reached out to Reince Priebus right after the thing went out and he, he, he had no idea. He said, I'm trying to find out. He writes was the chief of staff at the time. Um, so here you had, a, you know, a completely unhinged allegation made by a current president of a president that just left office. And usually, you know, there's deference given by both, you know, former presidents who keep quiet, current presidents who don't take up, take time to attack their predecessors. Uh, so that was completely thrown off. And you had a president 
a sitting president of the United States making ridiculous allegations with no evidence that his people were totally unaware of. So it worked up to September 10, 2020, uh, when you asked the president, and I quote, why did you lie to the American people and why should we trust what you have to say now? You must have known that was he would go nuclear when you asked that question. I did. And I have to confess, when I asked that question, although the specific subject was COVID and what he had told um, Bob Woodward, uh, we, we, had, we had him on tape back in April of 2020, acknowledging that he knew full well uh, the, the, the extent of the, um, of the disease. Actually, there was a, there was a, a Woodward tape from, um, from February, even before he had come out and said ridiculous things like it's just like the flu. We, we knew that he knew, uh, not only, we always knew that he was saying something that was not true, but here we had um, cold, hard evidence that he knew what he was saying was not true right. and even explained why he said it. So it was by any definition, a lie, an intentional lie. But my confession, uh, Bill, is that when I asked that question, I intentionally left it exactly as you read, not specific to that, because yeah. in a way, I felt that it was a question that covered all four years. Mm -hmm. Why did you lie to the American people? Not not just about this. I mean, he had been lying consistently uh, since he since he took office. And why should we trust anything you have to say now? So it was specifically brought on by the smoking gun evidence that Bob Woodward produced. Uh, but it was a question that I thought got to the core essence of the Trump presidency. And then, as expected, he went on the attack against you. Did you uh, suffer by being blackballed or cut out of events or cut out of interviews from the White House at the White House for a while? You know, it, first of all, it was interesting to see how it truly rattled him. He came back and he called me a disgrace to the ABC television network. He, you know, he said he went on and we went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth after after I started with that question. And then he took two more questions very quickly and ended the press conference. And it was clear that he was rattled. And he's not a guy that you normally see rattled. And that did surprise me. In terms of getting, you know, blackballed, one thing I learned is there, there's, there's, um, there's an expression, and I forget who first who first said this, that when you try to like suck up to somebody in power to get the good stuff, you realize there really is no good stuff. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like they, the, good, the good stuff's vastly overrated. They're, like, they're going to give you what they want to give you, what they want to get out. And and look, I had already been, you know, I mean, his press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, I had already called out for being a, essentially a political propagandist. And you know, I wasn't exactly talking much to her anyway. Uh, other people in the in the Trump White House will talk to you. I, I found regardless because they're usually out to get somebody else in the Trump White House. So I, I, I didn't I didn't notice any significant change actually, uh, besides him yelling at me on national television and calling me a disgrace. So this was COVID related. Would you agree that how Trump handled COVID is basically the central? story of his presidency? Well, it certainly occupies a great deal of your book, Betrayal. Yes, it does. Uh, the only, my only hesitation on that is his attack on our democracy. What he did both in the, you know, in the lead up to the election, he certainly laid the groundwork for doing it. But but what he did during the transition that led up to January 6th, it, it's hard to yeah. 
You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's like what, what, what's, what's, what's more defining a, uh, a mishandling of a pandemic uh, that killed hundreds of thousands of Americans or a, a frontal assault on American democracy. I mean, they're, they're, I think they're, they're, they're both pretty big. Good. Yeah, good point. <laughs> Do you think had he handled COVID better, uh, he would have been reelected? I was of, of the feeling that he w- was almost certainly to lose no matter what, because, you know, he, he won in 2016. It was, as I called it in front row at the Trump show, it was a black swan event. Uh, black swan events uh, don't tend to happen twice in a row. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was a, um, you know, it was a, it was a, I mean, you have to give him credit. It was the greatest upset in the history of American politics. But he had spent the following three years before COVID uh, systematically alienating the very people that he would need to win re-election, um, independents, women. It, so I, I think that it was unlike he's only going to win on any circumstances. But I do believe that if there was a way for him to win, the handling of COVID provided an opportunity if he had handled it better, and even even as late as getting COVID himself, he 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 gets COVID, he is medevaced to Walter Reed. He's he's even before that he's put on oxygen. Uh, his chief of staff is f- afraid that he may die, and he recovers, and he he does that cinematic return to the White House at uh, at sunset on Marine One and the walk up the stairs and the taking off the mask and all that stuff. But if he had used that and come out and said, I've now seen it, I've experienced it, I've felt it, it almost took my life, take this thing seriously. I don't know if it would have been enough for him to win, but but I think that it would have, it would have changed the race, would have made a difference. But instead he, you know, <laughs> there's, right. there's like nothing, yeah. there's nothing after that. Uh, right. As you indicated, he, he was like, he was take off his, open his shirt and have a Superman shirt yes. right under it. I, yes. I've conquered this, uh, which, which gets me uh, as, as closely as I followed this, um, the, the Trump campaign uh, or the Trump presidency uh, and thought I knew it all. There's a lot of new stuff in your book uh, that I didn't realize. And, and you just touched on one of the points. He was a lot sicker than we thought or than the White House let us know, uh, which even led to more lies from the White House and from the White House doctors about his situation. Yeah, I I tried to spell this out because I thought, look, doctors or White House is lying about a president's medical condition. Now, that is something that is not new (laughs) to Donald Trump. We've seen that you know, uh, Woodrow Wilson, we, 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 we saw mm-hmm. it with JFK. We've saw it, you know, uh, we, we, we've seen it over and over again, but this, they were just flat out lying. They weren't like not disclosing. They were proactively saying things that were, that were just not true, including, you know, his own, his own doctor, uh, through statements. I mean, I expect the lies to come from the press secretary at that point, but to hear president's doctor, I, I guess with the Ronnie Jackson experience, maybe I shouldn't have been yeah. all that surprised. Just flat out lying about his condition. Was he told by Trump to tell that lie? You know, Trump did, I, I describe in the book, choreograph just about everything that, uh, that the doctor said. So I don't have a direct line that Trump said, go out and say X, Y, and Z. But I I mean, he was choreographing the whole thing. So he was clearly acting on Trump's wishes, whether or not it was a direct, you know, instruction from Trump or not. I mean, I, I recount in the book, you remember the, uh, the striking image 
of the team of doctors all in their white coats yeah, in formation, right. walking out in yeah. front. It was really a really amazing image. I, I, I remember at the time, wow, that's that's impressive. And that was Trump at, from his from his bed, hospital bed, saying, right. you guys, the coats, got to keep them on. I want you all out there. Yeah. <laughs> he, right. he choreographed. The guy knows television. He knows images. Mm-hmm. He does. Jumping around, but one other area that uh, where I thought uh, excellent reporting. Let's go to January 6th. Trump is at the White House. There are a lot of people saying, you've got to do something. You've got to do something. Trump, it took him a long time to agree to make any statement, right? And then the statement he did make was not what people were saying he ought to, he ought to say. This was a moment of unusual candor from Kevin McCarthy. He did, I think, three or four interviews that afternoon. But, but the interview he did on ABC, which I set up by, by reaching out directly to him, and he, and he did an interview with, with Stephanopoulos, he actually used the words beg, used the word beg. He was begging. He said he called and he was begging Trump to get on television and to tell his mm-hmm. supporters to back down and to condemn what was happening. And it was still a couple of hours after that before he does anything. And when, and when he finally agrees to tape this video message, you're right. It was, it was, it was awful. I mean, he literally says, we love you uh, to the rioters. Uh, right. He tells them to go home. Uh, but, but follows it up with the message of, you know, we love you. And, and he talks about, he repeats all the stuff about the election lies, everything else. The only, the only good words in that videotaped message, which was sent out via Twitter, shot in the Rose Garden, was the words, go home now. Um, mm-hmm. But it's packed before and after with message of praise for the people that are, that are even at that moment, still you know, rampaging through the Capitol. And what I, what I learned is I, I actually talked to one of the people that was present in the Rose Garden for the taping of that message. And what I learned is there were several takes mm-hmm. before he got to the one they used that were deemed unacceptable. And the reason why was that he did not include the words, go home. <laughs> it was just yeah. praise for the rioters and nothing else. Meanwhile, his vice president is stuck on the loading dock under the, cap, under the heart building of the Capitol. And he does not call to say, Mike, how are you doing? Everything okay? Right? No word yeah. to Mike. No word to Pence. I, I mean, I was covering this. I was working around the clock on January 6th throughout the, the following days. And the, the question I asked several times a day at, at the time was, has the president reached out to the vice president? Because even even after it was over, did he reach out to him and say, "Hey, sorry about that, Mike," or you know, "Hey, you okay? What's yeah?" And right. and and it was days and days and days. They finally arrange an awkward Oval Office meeting for the two of them that this build is uh, to talk about the week ahead, and then they put out like this joint statement saying they discussed the issues for the next. And in that conversation, the subject of January sixth does not actually even come up. You also, you start the book by talking about the your interview with Trump, I guess it was in March, no? March 18th of this right. year, yes. Uh, at Mar-a-Lago. And you ask him uh, his reaction to people who were chanting, hang Mike Pence in front of the Capitol. Even you must have been a little stunned by his response. I was, and and the context is before I asked specifically about Pence, I asked about January 6th, and I asked about that tweet he put out uh, that evening after the videotaped message where he said, remember this day forever. 
<laughs> one question I've, I've had since that moment was, what do you want me to remember about it? I yeah, mean, what exactly right. are we remembering? Because I, I actually agree we better remember this day forever, but I've got a, a hunch that we have a different set of reasons. And he he made it clear in his answer to me that he thinks of that day very fondly because he saw that his supporters came from all over the country and they came to fight for him. And I can't tell you how many times that I heard Trump or heard of him saying to people, the problem is you people aren't fighting for me, to his his staff, to the Republicans on the Hill. And now we had people coming to fight for him. And he did say to me, well, it it was marred a little later on. Marred. He didn't say how exactly, but I guess that means when they beat up Capitol police officers and stormed their way in, I'm not sure. But then I turned to Pence and yeah, when, when he, when there isn't a, he says he wasn't worried about him. He knew he was fine. He knew he was totally fine. And the hang Mike Pence, he, he proceeds to justify it. And that, I think that phrase that he said to me, it's common sense, John. Now, even if we give him the benefit of the doubt, who knows? I've had arguments with people about this. Is he saying it's common sense that you should that you would be chanting hang Mike Pence? I don't personally think so. But I've just asked him about that. And he's saying it's common sense that people are angry because Pence should have done what he said and overturned the election. I mean, it's but but the yeah. callousness, the lack of any empathy or any concern, and literally justifying explaining in a positive way the actions of people who wanted to murder his vice president is, is I think, of an entirely, I mean, it's, it's actually of a new level even for Trump. Absolutely. Unbelievable. You also were the first to report that Donald Trump talked to the Republican national chair, Ronna McDaniel, and said, I'm quitting. I'm leaving the Republican Party. He yeah. Didn't, so why? It, it So First of all, it wasn't a threat. It was a statement of fact. Ah. He told her that he was leaving. He was done. It was over. He was starting his own party. And to me, like the, again, and Trump, so much about Trump is cinematic and how he like, mm-hmm. how he does things. This was such a dramatic moment because the conversation is taking place on Air Force One just after he has gone up the steps of the plane for the very last time to take the flight home to Florida on January 20th. And she is simply calling to give him wish him well because she couldn't be at his little farewell ceremony. And she, she's really upset about this. And the, and she starts saying, you can't do this. This you're going to destroy us. We will never win again. And according very uh, extremely well sourced direct witness to this conversation said that Trump's response is exactly you'll never win again. And his attitude was, I lost, you need to lose too. Everybody around me needs to lose. And the reason why he backed down is because the RNC got together over the course of the next several days and made it clear to him that if he went through with this, he was it was going to cost him tens of millions of dollars. Legal fees were not going to be paid. They were paying the legal fees related to election challenges. They were going to move those right over to him, stop paying them. And But more significantly, the single most valuable thing that Donald Trump has political asset is the database of 40 plus million Mm. people that have given money to him. And they, they rent that out to Republican candidates all across the country. They make millions of dollars renting it out. And they were going to say, we will render that asset useless by giving it to everybody for free. You'll never be able to charge anybody for it again. 
<laughs> so again, with Donald Trump, it comes back to the uh, follow the follow the money. I guess yep. right. Yeah. One thing that I enjoyed about your book particularly was um, you identify several bad guys. Uh, at least my conclusion was I, I would label them as bad guys in the administration, but also um, refreshingly several good guys. Among the good guys, John Kelly, mm-hmm. Mark Milley. And Brad Raffensperger, of course, who was not a member of the administration. Tell us about Kelly's role and Millie's role, particularly. And 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 there were others, and it is reassuring. And you know, th- this also kind of brings up a debate uh, about what what do you do if I mean you're in the administration. I mean, we can. I mean, you got there, yeah. so you're there, right? And Trump is doing what he's doing. Do you do you resign in protest? Do you leave or do you stay? In many cases, resigning in protest is is the only option. But some of these people felt a need to stay to basically do their part to save the republic from the president they were serving. This is kind of the, you know, the op. This is the 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 anonymous op-ed, anonymous book. Um, yeah, right. You know, Miles Taylor. Now we know, uh, but but it's it's a it's an interesting approach. But Kelly, you know, Kelly was obviously out. Um, by the end of 2018, and he, you know, he tried. I think more than anybody in that West Wing to to to, to keep things keep things on the tracks. And you know, there, there are a lot. There's a lot of things to criticize Kelly about. He was an architect of the policy on the border before he he left DHS. But he was the guy that I called on January 6th. Really, my first call when I saw the the, the people going into into the building, or even. St- storming through the barricades before they got in. I called him up and I called him up because I recount this story that when I was working on front row, I had asked Kelly, it was almost like an, uh, an aside because it wasn't the focus of the book at all at this point. Remember front row I'd finished before any of this. I said, what, what happens if, if he loses? Will he, will he leave? I mean, it wasn't like, it was kind of a crazy question. Of course he leaves. That's what you do. We've done this since poor John Adams had to, had to leave after, uh, after the 1800 election. And, and he said, oh yeah, no, 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 he'll leave. Don't worry about that. And, and if he refuses to, there are people that will escort him out. <laughs> oh my God, this is pretty dramatic. And then, and then, he, and then he added the line uh, to me, which I'll never forget. You know, he could chain himself to the resolute. Somebody will go over and cut the chains and escort him <laughs> out. <laughs> God, and, and it yeah. seemed seemed nutty, but here we saw January sixth. So I called him up. I was like, "Okay, what's going on? Who's got the Who's got the chain cutter?" You know, and and he, without failing, without hesitating for a moment, uh, said that the cabinet should convene immediately and invoke the Twenty Fifth Amendment, declare the president mentally unfit, and remove him from office. Didn't happen, obviously, uh, but there were people in that cabinet uh, who I outlined in the book who actually did discuss that surprisingly given who they were but uh but but so i think i think a good guy obviously millie was really hurt by what happened in the in the march through lafayette square and the uh, the saint john's church disaster and I, I think uh felt that he was used felt that his uniform was used his position was used by trump i kind of outlined in detail what happened on that day but the way he and mark esper and i put mark esper in another category as as, as somebody who who, who who did the right thing. Uh, I would add him too, right. Really did everything they could, the two of them, and they worked in tandem um, to try to prevent Trump from from plunging us into a crisis that, that, that might have been you know, far more devastating. Right, making it clear that they were against sending the military into the uh, streets of America to overturn 
the election. Uh, among the bad guys, there are several, of course, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and, and all the rest. Mark Meadows, I came away from your book, one of the takeaways was that Mark Meadows was really more of a key player in everything that Trump did wrong that we may have imagined, right? I mean, absolutely he was, central. Yes, I think that's absolutely yeah. central to everything. You know, one of the things that was fascinating to me as I was doing the reporting for the book, and I went through and I got, I, I talked to everybody who would talk to me, and I was surprised that most of them agreed to talk to me. Not all on the record. Some actually put stuff on the record. But the one consistent theme by people who were there and weren't the truly, you know, insane people, not, not, not the Rudy Giuliani's and the Sidney Powell's, but the, but the people that trying to keep things from truly breaking apart, all had something to say about Mark Meadows mm. and about mm. how he fueled all of this. It wasn't that he was, it wasn't like that it was his idea. He wasn't the one bringing in the conspiracy theories himself. He wasn't the one, but, but he enabled Trump at every turn. He forced others to act on the wackiest, most dangerous things. I recount John Radcliffe, who was the director of national intelligence. He gets a gets a phone call on his cell phone late at night from Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani. This is the top intelligence official in the United States government. And he's got a, conf- I call it a conference call of crazy. The two of them start talking to him about this thing, about how these two CIA supercomputers that were used to rig votes did it, you know, it's, it's QAnon stuff. Okay. And he, you know, Ratcliffe who seems as Trumpy as they can come, but he's like, what are these people doing calling me? But he immediately, from the conversation, it becomes immediately clear that Mark Meadows is the one that has given out his cell phone number. Mm. And, you know, there's another call that I outline of, of Sidney Powell calling a, a top official, Ezra Cohen at the, at the defense department. And again, the suspicion is, we don't know for sure, but very few people had this direct line. How do they get it? It seems like Mark Meadows, his fingerprints are somewhere, everywhere, at every turn. That's why the January 6th committee has put right. uh, the fight over his uh, subpoena very high on their on priority list, as they should. Back to my category of bad guys and good guys, if you if you allow me that, <laughs> that license, where would you put Bill Barr? You can say lots of things about Bill Barr and about what he did uh, before the election. You can talk about the way he undermined Mueller. You can talk about the way he put his fingers on the scale for uh, for Trump's political allies as they were being prosecuted. Right. Uh, you can talk about him raising questions about the integrity of mail-in voting before the election. There, there are lots of there's a laundry list of things that if you want to have a rap sheet on Bill Barr, there you are. But I think that Barr's decision to, uh, first of all, refuse Trump's demands that he use the power of the Justice Department to overturn the election. He refused to go out and seize voting machines. He refused to do all this stuff, which he re- which would have been illegal, let's face it. But, yeah. but who's going to stop him if he's determined to break the law? He's the top law enforcement official in the land. And then when he comes out, and I, I devote an entire chapter to this, when, when – yeah. When, when Barr comes out and tells the world that there was no widespread fraud uh, in the election, it's, the, it's one of the single most important moments in the transition, and it's Barr. And he served, he did the right thing. And I, I hear from people, oh, Barr's just trying to, you know, revive his reputation and, you know, let's not let him do this. And people are obsessed with wanting to attack Barr. I mean, it's fine. Go attack Barr for all you want for what he's done over the course of his career. I, 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 who cares? Do that. 
Barr's reputation is meaningless at this point. The guy's never going to be attorney general again. He's not running for office. He's mm-hmm. retired and working on his memoirs. I'm not concerned about Barr's reputation, but what I'm concerned with is what his what his actions did to prevent a far greater catastrophe. And it's especially notable when you consider that Barr leaves on the, uh, and I don't have my, my own book in front of me right now, but it's, I think it's the 14th of December and the 15th of December, or that's, that's when he tells Trump he's, he's, he's leaving. On the 15th of December, what does Trump do? He brings in the soon-to-be acting attorney general, uh, Rosen, thinking, aha, we're finally getting rid of Barr. I'm going to get this guy to do all the stuff that Barr refused to do. And of course, Rosen refuses as well, leading right. to Trump's effort to find yet another acting attorney general uh, with the Jeffrey Clark debacle in, in early January. And here's, here's a theme. You mentioned the good guys and the bad guys. The good guys, to use your terms, your term here, many of them are people where there's nothing in their background that would suggest that they would stand up and prevent, you know, stand up for good, stand up against mm-hmm. Donald Trump, and to keep Donald Trump from effectively destroying our our country. It's some of the most some of the people that have been the most loyal to him. I mean, Pence is the most obvious example. Uh, never once crossed Trump, not even during the campaign, during the Access Hollywood thing. Never once crossed Trump. And he does what he does on January 6th. Barr, as we just discussed. Uh, Brad Raffensperger is a Republican, you know, low, relatively low-level Republican operative, Trump supporter in Georgia. Who knew that he would be a profile in courage? And he was. The legislative leaders in Michigan who get summoned to the White House, ordered by Trump uh, to, to convene and send a new batch of electoral votes uh, to Washington. Those guys are Trump supporters, elected to office by Republicans who love Donald Trump. They stood up and they looked the president in the eye in the Oval Office and they said no and issued a statement within within just about 15 minutes of leaving the Oval Office saying that they had refused him. So imagine if any of those people along the way had been like Mark Meadows and were willing yep. to do anything, the, the outcome could have been much worse. Yeah, you make that point in the book. Had they not done what they had done, um, things could have been exactly a lot worse. Jonathan Carl, our guest author of the new book, Betrayal, the final act of the Trump show. It may not be the final act, Jonathan. You've been talking about that lately. What happens and how do reporters respond if Donald Trump becomes the candidate again in 2024? After a quick break, I want to ask you about that here on the Bill Press Pod. Uh, so hold on. We'll be right back with Jonathan Carl. For today's break and for today's sponsor, let me tell you about someone and something very special. This, of course, the holiday season, we're all looking for something special for someone we love. And there is no better gift than a hand-woven scarf by the real talent in our family, my wife, Carol. You've heard me talk about Carol's scarves before. She is an award-winning weaver. She specializes in original rayon chenille and bamboo scarves, each one of which she designs and weaves herself. It's come in a great variety of colors and designs, which you can find out if you just check out our website for a full look at what's available at carolpressscarves.com. But you got to do it soon. In fact, do it today because uh, it's important, of course, for you and Carol, that you get your scarf in the mail in time for the holidays. Again, check out our website at carolpressscarves.com. Treat yourself or someone you love 
to an original Carol Press scarf for this holiday season. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back on the Bill Press Pod. The new book is Betrayal, the final act of the Trump show. Uh, You think you know what happened in that last year? Uh, No, you don't. Not until you read this book. It's a great book by good friend Jonathan Carl uh, from ABC News. You make this point on a personal level that you decided that Trump's presidency required that you approach your job, I guess, a little differently, right? That you could not just uh, cover Trump and report report on what he said without pointing out it wasn't true. Yeah, I, I had, and this this is even before the year 2020, I, I just had several moments where you're faced with this incredible situation where it may be irresponsible to air, to broadcast the words of the president of the United States. And sometimes even if you were going to point out why what he has said is a lie what's wrong with it, everything else. His words from that pulpit speak really loudly. And when you have him saying things to the world that are not true, and especially as COVID hits, actually could be deadly, how do you handle that as a journalist? How do you, I mean, what what, what we started doing, what I started doing was often characterizing what he said, but not airing the actual words. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I aired them, airing them with lots of context before and after. So if he's running for president again, and I, as you alluded to, I, I, I have my doubts that he will. By the way, betrayal is the final act of the Trump show. The curtain has not fallen. <laughs> uh, right. the, the betrayal yeah. is still active. It's a question of, you know, how, how close we are to, uh, to, to, to that curtain falling. Well, just to jump in, that's an important point. I mean, as you, as you do point out, the coup or the attempted coup is not over, right? I mean, he's no, still it's, it's, he's still at it. He's still at it, and he's trying methodically to erase, to destroy anybody who stood in his way. Obviously, the ten who voted for impeachment in the House, the senators who voted to convict him in the, in the Senate trial. He's trying to get rid of Brad Raffensperger in Georgia. He's trying to get rid rid of similar uh, 
you know, Republican leaders making it a litmus test for anybody for his endorsement to to uh, echo his lies about 2020. No, he's he is still very much at it. He doesn't have the power of the presidency, which is a huge difference, uh, but he is still very much at it. So uh, were he to become okay, and and you and Brian Stelter talked about this um, on uh, on CNN Reliable Sources. Were he to become a candidate, and who's going to stand in his way? We might ask uh, in twenty twenty four. How do reporters, how the networks cover his campaign? Not like a regular campaign, particularly the cables, because obviously you know the cable network. You know, you 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 would traditionally you, there'd be times when you'd be you would air uh, an entire speech by a candidate. I mean, I, I can't imagine that ever happening outside of Fox and Newsmax and the various outlets on the right. But what does a debate look like? Do you? I mean, you remember what those debates were like in 2020, but oh, yeah. are, are the networks going to turn over? I don't know. I'm not the decision maker here, just to be clear. I'm just a, I'm just a reporter. But do the networks turn over two hours of airtime to Donald Trump on a stage, when knowing that he's going to be rapid fire repeating lies? I, I'm not sure that happens. And if it doesn't happen, how do you cover a debate where you're not, I mean, to cover a, a campaign where you can't even kind of air a debate? It's, it's, it's really disturbing. It's really, because look, in my DNA, I don't take sides. I'm a reporter and I'm here to cover it all. But I'm also here to use whatever skills I have to, and information I have to inform the public. And that means presenting the truth to, to, to the best of my ability to, to, to establish it. So allowing somebody just to use whatever outlet I have as a conveyor belt to repeat lies, that's, that's not the job of a reporter. But how do you do? I mean, I, as I mentioned with Brian Stelter when we talked about this, I, I don't have the answers to this. I, I think that we may, I don't think he's actually going to run, but my God, if he does, and, and he certainly may, I don't know what that looks like. We don't live in a one we don't want to be a one-party state, you know. We don't want the the press to right. be all in with one. That's 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 terrible for lots of reasons. But you know, when you have one candidate in a race that is basically running against the system that you are, you know, the whole process that you're covering and trying to undermine that system and undermine that process, I don't know how that. I don't have a full, clear sense of of how we do that. But the fact that this conversation is taking place, well, let me make that a question. This conversation is, in fact, taking place not just between you and Brian Stelter, right? But in yes, in yes. all the newsrooms in America today. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Network. Yes. yes. And yes. and people recognize that they can't just let Trump be unfiltered. And also, isn't it true that that the guests that they book, right, can also not just be some of these crazies, right? You can't give them time just to go in there and say stuff that you know is bullshit, right? Yeah. Again, you want to cover the full spectrum of the political system here, but you don't book Matt Gates to talk about uh, election integrity, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One thing I have noticed is that many, I mean, mainline anchors and reporters today They'll make a point of saying, you know, who Trump, who sa Trump says that the that there was massive fraud in 2020, for which they, they will add, for which there is zero evidence, right? Yeah. So I think that's a step forward, right? Mm -hmm. They also recognize they can't just repeat it without mentioning again. There's not a scintilla of truth to the whole to that lie. 
Uh, it's going to be interesting how that whole conversation plays out and probably uh, the subject of your next book, Jonathan Carl. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see. Right. We shall see. Thank you, Bill. It's great to talk to you. Great to talk. And congratulations on the book, Jonathan. Betrayal, the final act of the Trump show, Jonathan Carl. Thanks, Jonathan. Great. Thanks, Bill. And that's it for today's podcast with Jonathan Carl. Uh, his book, Betrayal, and there's a link to purchase the book. I strongly recommend you buy it and read it. The link will be on the episode notes to today's podcast. Again, that's it for today, but we'll be back on Friday with our Reporters Roundtable. going to be interesting this week to see whether Congress can get its act together to do anything about the uh, defense authorization bill, the debt ceiling, and the, the big Build Back Better bill, all of which awaiting action. We'll see if that happens. And talk about anything else in the news with three of Washington's top political reporters on Friday. In the meantime, take care of yourself, stay safe, stay sane, and come back and see us for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.